ask you to turn in the Word of God to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 this morning, beloved. If the words of, of that hymn have not yet become one of your favorites, then I encourage you to get further acquainted with the language. It's one of those hymns I still remember the first time I, I sang it. I'm trying to, trying to get to grips with the depth of the theology as I was going through it for the first time. So it causes you to stop. But I encourage you to do that, get familiar with what it's saying and understand the glory of its truth. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, as we continue our series in Hebrews moving through this epistle, we have reached as far as verse 19. And with the Lord's help, we're going to look at verses 20 through 24. We'll try to deal with all those verses today. I'm going to read from verse 11 just to step back a little and get something of the context here. Hebrews 7, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man give attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. It is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made, not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. They truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Amen. May the Lord write his precious word on every one of our hearts. Let's pray, beloved. Let's seek the Lord. Our God, we praise thee for the confidence that gives us a right to stand in thy presence even now. And we simply ask in Jesus' name that thou wilt command thy blessing upon thy people. Let none look to the weakness of a man. Let none look to a mere informative homily. May we desire a message from God May that be what we receive today, the preacher included. Come, O God, <clears throat> feed thy sheep, feed thy lambs, and prepare us for the appropriate frame to sit 
at thy table today. Come in power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been making the case that the Apostle, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews, is arguing to encourage Jews that had come to an understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, is trying to help them, or we might say prevent them from moving away from their stated commitment. These people had expressed a trust in Jesus at some point, perhaps in a synagogue. The Word of God had reached them. Christ had been set forth. Jesus had been presented as the one who fulfilled all the prophecies, and they understood what was being put before them. They saw that in Jesus of Nazareth, there is the fulfillment of all of our hopes and all that God has promised. But life is not easy. The challenges of life are real. And such are the challenges of life that it can actually impact on our very faith. That what we go through in life is not disconnected from the faith that we have. We have committed ourselves to trust God. We believe that in Him we find salvation. We see that in God's Son there is hope and deliverance. We believe that He cares for us. We believe that He loves us. And sometimes when things don't transpire as we had hoped, then it begins to challenge the very faith that we possess. That's something of the setting, at least for some of those that are here being addressed by the apostle. They feel the persecution. We're in the 60s AD. There is a feeling already that that's a kind of ominous sense of the destruction of Jerusalem. I think some can sense it. Certainly the persecution, they're very aware of that. They're very conscious of the fact that those who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah are no longer hiding under any of the laws that were given to the Jews that they're being segregated rather than being perceived as a sect of the Jewish religion. They're now being seen as a distinct people and therefore every sort of arrangement and agreement that the Jews had under the Roman Empire is, is in threat of being removed from them and therefore they would come under greater persecution and difficulty. Well, one of the arguments that comes then to those who are feeling this threat also is, is that their, their, their Jewish neighbors and family members also lean into this. And they try to build upon it with theological arguments to present the fact that you've made the wrong decision anyway. You should never have left. In leaving, you've left the priesthood. In leaving, you've left all that our fathers have given to us. You've made a grave mistake. Come back. And one of those arguments, of course, is the fact that in Jesus Christ, you don't have a priest to represent you. And what we've considered already, going right back as far as chapter 5, verse 10, there's mention of the high priest Melchizedek. Call of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Mel Melchizedek functioned as a priest in the Old Testament. We've looked at that already. And he becomes them because he is referred to in Psalm 110, a very distinctly messianic psalm, he becomes critical in the argumentation that all along the way, the entire time, it was the intention of God to raise another priest that was not of the tribe of Levi. So that if the mind that was acutely aware of what God was saying and studied Psalm 110 they would recognize if, if this psalm is true, and it is, it is telling us there's coming a future day where one will stand and represent us who is not a Levite, who is not following Aaron and that line, but is set apart and distinct. Indeed, the Messiah himself will be as a priest. And what's fascinating about that particular psalm is that it combines the offices of Christ in being both king and priest. And so the priest that they're looking to, the deliverer they're anticipating, the one that God has promised, is going to merge these offices in a way that you only see in Melchizedek. Aaron was forbidden from entering into any kingly 
responsibilities or position. And so it was for the kings. They were forbidden from entering into the realm of the priests. Those two areas of service to God were kept distinct so that when it's fulfilled in the Messiah, it becomes a very key argument for who he is and what God intended him to accomplish for his people. We've seen, looking at Hebrews 7, the opening three verses, the precedent for Christ's priesthood, that's Melchizedek. That's where the argument leans into. We've seen also the superiority of Christ's priesthood in verses 4 through 10. In verses 11 through 19, we saw a priesthood with, a, with better hope. You see that from the language of verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh to God. We come now to see a priesthood by divine oath. Not just a priesthood with better hope, but a priesthood by divine oath. Before we consider our passage, remember, remember that really verse 19 is a summation of what we need. As sinners, our need is to be brought near to God. And so in verse 19, when the apostle says, hear this better hope, what did it accomplish? It's by this better hope we draw nigh unto God. Men and women, that is what you need. Jonathan Edwards said in a terse way, all religion lieth in coming to God by him. All religion lieth in coming to God by him. Everything is about this, coming to God by Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, and that is what we believe. And part of what the apostle here has argued in building upon Psalm 110 and what it says, he is he, stating, if I can say it in this, this language, that Psalm 110 promises a divine priestly king who has been appointed to remain in power forever. Psalm 110 promises a divine priestly king who has been appointed to remain in power forever. And in order to make that point, of course, he has utilized the significance of Melchizedek but he is now fading. Verse 21 of this chapter is the last reference to Melchizedek. He has served his purpose. The precedent has been set before us. We move now to see that Jesus Christ is the one that was typified in Melchizedek. And of course, with the going away, with the moving away of the Levitical priesthood, the question may arise, what confidence do we have in knowing that this priesthood will last forever? If you're asking me to surrender my hope and dependence in the Levitical priesthood, how do I know that this priesthood through Jesus Christ also is one that can be depended on? Because if, if it's going to fade away, what's the purpose? What's the use? And so if you look at verse 20, let's read again our text. Verse 20, and inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. You see it put in the negative, but the positive is, is stated there that it's with an oath he, that's Jesus, was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he is building on this whole idea of a divine oath that this priest that is to come after the order or in the likeness of Melchizedek's priesthood who had no predecessor, who had no successor, in this one who comes and serves himself alone as priest, there is the assurance by divine oath that this is the last and only priest needed for the people of God. We're going to see three primary ideas here in this passage. First, the contrast the covenant, and the co-signer. We'll look at what we want to consider here under those three headings, the contrast, the covenant, and the co-signers. We look at the contrast. First note with me that the Levites were made temporary by death. There's, there's an obvious understanding that the, the Levitical priesthood had to be temporary by the reality of death. Look at verse 21. Those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, and so on and so forth. And then you go to verse 23. They, that's those Levitical priesthoods, the priests truly were many priests, 
because they were not suffered or allowed to continue by reason of death. So they're facing the reality of the curse. Now the whole of the gospel is to answer and give deliverance from the curse. And yet the ministers that they're looking to can't themselves give deliverance, even to themselves. The evidence in the death of Aaron and his sons should have told the people of God, there can be no hope of deliverance from the curse if the men in ministry can't overcome death. So God permits these priests to rise and fall. They come in, they give their service, and eventually they die. They were handicapped by their subjection to the curse. And therefore, though they performed their work by commandment, and they did in Exodus 29:35, makes clear that God commanded Aaron and his sons to be given to this ministry, so they're not doing it at a whim. It's not a good idea for Moses. God has commanded it. But that command, that command is not married to an oath. And here you see how the oath that's stated concerning the Messiah is superior, and the command given to Aaron and his sons are subservient to the fact that God has vowed that the one who's actually going to accomplish deliverance for the people of God is still to come. You're waiting on him. So these priests, they lived, they died, they were made temporary by death, but secondly, the Savior was made permanent by oath. The Savior was made permanent by oath. In verse 20, inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. He didn't come in just simply by, again, his own desire. <clears throat> it wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't even just a commandment. It was by an oath he was made priest. Verse 21, those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath. This word oath is found four, four times in the New Testament, and they're all right here, verse 20, 21, and verse 28. Now, what's an oath? I think most of us have an idea. An oath is a solemn promise regarding one's future action. Making a vow, committing oneself to something to be expected in the future. Now, does God arbitrarily give oaths? Does He arbitrarily swear? Does He just use that language in a frivolous way? Obviously not. Now, we've seen something of this already, God swearing. Go back to chapter 3. You'll see what He swore in Moses' day. Chapter 3, verse 11, where God swear in His wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. There you have language that's very similar. Chapter 6 as well, verse 13, when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. So this idea of God swearing or giving an oath. It's found expressed there also. But the word used in chapter 7 is distinct from what we have in chapter 3 and chapter 6. And I was wrestling over this. I was digging as deep as I could to try and find some answer because there wasn't much that was conclusive in the distinction in the Greek words. And before I found an answer, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe, maybe it's because of the setting. Maybe it's the setting because those those where God swears in chapter 3 and chapter 6, in a sense, they are, they are set in time. Whereas Psalm 110 is set in eternity. God is stating this in eternity past. This is what He plans to do. Maybe that's the distinction. But finally, I found some scholars who, who give something of an idea that may reflect the distinction here. One remarks that the Greek usage of this word here found in Hebrews 7 is uh, typically referred, or pardon me, uh, the word focuses on the act of taking an oath as distinct from the oath itself. So the focus is on the act of taking an oath, not just the fact that there is one. Another idea is that this word typically referred to sacrifices made on taking a solemn oath. So that's looking at, uh, let's say, common Greek usage at the time of the first century. 
And I thought about both of those. I thought about the focus on the act rather than the oath itself, the act of taking an oath, as well as on sacrifices being made and taking a solemn oath, thinking that in one, in a certain sense, both apply. The first, because the act of taking an oath is what makes Jesus distinct from Aaron. And in the second, in the making of this oath, it's not disconnected from sacrifice, is it? There's the understanding that this one, that God is setting apart by oath, must also die. Whatever the case, there's a distinction here. And as noted, the Levitical priests function through succession by ordinary generation, but verse 20 and 21 declares that they did not minister by virtue of a divine oath. So God doesn't restrict Himself forever by Levitical priesthood. He didn't tie it to an oath. And this is further argued. Look at verse 21, because the inclusion of this part of Psalm 110 is important. When it says, the Lord swear and will not repent. There's an emphasis there. There's an emphasis on the fact that God has made an oath and He has no plans to deviate from that oath. Now again, friends, this, this, is, this is made in eternity past. This is always in the mind of God. And what the apostle then is arguing is saying this, this has always been the intention. And while the Levitical priesthood came and served a purpose, yet you can see that that purpose could not achieve its end. Go back to verse 18 of the passage. Look there. There is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. It was weak. It couldn't do what it needed to do. For the law, that is what was established under Moses, the Aaron and his sons and all that ceremony made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. It had a purpose. It functioned with meaning and significance. It was not to be lightly disregarded. It was not to be ignored. Jews were expected to go up and travel to Jerusalem three times a year to engage in three primary feasts. They were to adhere to everything that was stipulated to them. But it made nothing perfect. It made nothing complete. It could not deal with the curse. It could not address the fundamental problem. The very, very ones ministering were subject to the curse. We had nothing what it needs to be in order to draw near to God. So God intends from eternity one to come who will fulfill a different role. The Levites had their ancestry. Jesus has an eternal oath. And that is the distinction. The bottom line is there is contrast here. Contrast. The Levitical priesthood had to contend, listen, with their mortality, their multiplicity, and their momentary purpose. These are things that were attended them, all of which are set aside because of Jesus Christ. He is not dealing with mortality because he rises from the dead. It shows his right to maintain a forever stance of his work by the fact that on the third day he rose again from the grave. Aaron didn't do it. None of his sons accomplished it. But this one rose again from the dead. That sets him apart so that he can be established there in that role as the priest of the people of God forever. So he gets victory over the mortality. There's no multiplicity. It's only him. It's set aside only him. We're told, verse 23 they truly were many priests. Had to be. They had to be. They kept dying. So the momentary nature that they have is not true concerning Jesus Christ. Even Christ's death was different. They died. The, Le the Levites died. Levitical priesthood died. And you might say, well, Jesus died as well, did he not? So but even his death, when, when, when Aaron died, right? Think of this. When Aaron died, it was not part of his priestly work. He wasn't doing that for Israel. He wasn't accomplishing anything salvific by his death. 
When Christ dies, even in his death, it in itself is accomplishing something for his people. His death reflects the fact that even in that moment, Aaron spent his, his remaining years functioning in this role, and eventually he dies. The Bible records it. But all that he did, n- none of that was, w- w- all that he was doing was for Israel, and then he comes to his death, and that's, it's, not, it's not for Israel. What Jesus does is all for his people, and then he comes to death, and that also is for his people. That also was a priestly work. The distinctions are clear. The contrast is unmistakable. Look at verse 24. You see this. This man, because he continuous ever, continuous, usually that word is translated as abide. He abides ever. Christ was appointed to this state. He abode in this state And so even in his death, he could not be removed from this state. It couldn't be taken from him. So even there in death, he continues. He abides forever in an unchangeable priesthood. The word unchangeable has the idea it can't be transferred. Even there, because his death is for his people, even there, there's no transfer of the work. There's no transfer of the office. There's no conferring of that role to anyone else. You have it, don't you? Thinking of the words of... I think it's... Him, 175. A good high priest has come supplying Aaron's place and taking up his room, dispensing life and grace. The law by Aaron's priesthood came, but grace and truth by Jesus' name. Verse 3, he died but lives again. By the throne he stands There shows how he was slain, opening his pierced hands. Our priest abides and pleads the cause of us who have transgressed his laws. Continuous ever, abides ever in this untransferable priesthood. What is the apostle arguing? He is settling the nerves. He is silencing the question. Can we depend on this priesthood? Will this one prevail through all of time? Can we depend on Jesus? And it begins with this oath, this confidence that we have that God always intended him to step into this role and be distinct from what was established under Moses. So we've seen the contrast. Note also the covenant. The covenant. Look at verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. The word there also is often translated covenant. Now, I don't wish to say too much on this point. I just state that now. Uh, it's a little like Melchizedek, who gets mentioned in chapter 5, verse 10, but he doesn't really come into view until chapter 6. So he, he's, the thought is thrown out there, and then there's other things to say, and then you come back to it. And it's a little the same here. I mean, the idea of the covenant testament is, is thrown in here, and he is going to move in that direction. We'll see that in chapter 8 and chapter 9. So I don't wish to go too much into that, but there is this whole idea of, of what we're living in. We're living in this, this new covenant, this New Testament era, where Christ is the mediator, right? You have this in chapter 8, verse 6, chapter 9, 15, 12, 24. He's also, as we have here, he's made a surety. We'll see that in just a moment. And so this covenant of which Christ is a mediator and surety is described as better, chapter 7, 22, and 8, 6. It's also second, chapter 8, verse 7. It's new, chapter 8, verse 8, 9, 15, 12, 24, and eternal, 13, 20. So we're going to see more of this as we progress. But just, just to give, just pepper some thoughts. Look at chapter 8 for a moment. 
and verse 6. So we have mention of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and so on. And then chapter 8, verse 6, it says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, a better testament, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Just to lay out one basic understanding here, when he's referring to the old, he's not taking all of the Old Testament and just throwing it in the trash. He is taking that which was established by God through Moses at Sinai. That's what's being referred to. That, so the Levitical priesthood, ceremonial activity, all that went along with that, all of that is being contrasted with Jesus Christ. And Christ is better than all that was established there at Sinai that was to point forward to the person and work of the Lord Jesus, to give indication of what he would accomplish. It does not set aside everything that happened to Abraham, what God promised to Abraham and so on. What you actually have is, is this promise given to Abraham coexists then with what God establishes under Moses. The two of them run parallel. But there's one that has this temporary nature. What he establishes through Moses at Sinai in part, has a temporary nature that's going to be set aside. But it's all helping support what he promised to Abraham. And you'll find this when you go to Galatians 3. You will see how the promise given to Abraham is contrasted with what was given to Moses and the law. And you're seeing how Christ comes to fulfill what was said and stated to Abraham. And that the law plays this temporary role in supporting it, but it is going to be set aside once the promised seed comes. So that's just a little peppering your thought with what we're going to come into when we consider this whole idea of this covenant, this new covenant, this era in which we stand because of the person and work of Christ. But I want to get for the remainder of the time to the co-signer, the co-signer, because if you look again, chapter 7, verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, the surety of a better testament or better covenant. This, this is where I want to dwell just before we come to the Lord's table. Because you know the idea of a, of a co-signer. I use that language just to alliterate the headings. But you, you get the idea. You see it in, in finance and in business and with, with loans that are taken out. You have someone who co-signs, sometimes even with cars or any kind of borrowing of money, you have at times a co-signer. And that co-signer is taking responsibility, saying if, if there is a demand on this loan, if, if the, the original party does not meet the requirement, then I will, I will meet that need. I will step in and take responsibility there. Now, Hebrews 7 is saying that that is the role that Jesus Christ plays. He plays this role of stepping in to be Surely, where he assumes all the responsibility that is laid upon the sons of Adam, that they are required before God to do, to obey the law, to manifest perfect obedience. And if they don't, then they suffer. And all of that is, is being, we understand that that's, that's the reality. It's what we're faced with in Genesis 3, the fall of Adam, the consequences of the fall, the death that comes by disobedience, and the misery of sin. And Jesus Christ comes in to be a surety that will guarantee that what is owed by men is paid those specifically who trust in him and believe in him. Now, we have this illustrated, and I think this is maybe the best way to sort of drive the whole idea home in Genesis with the, the life of, of Judah. Go to, go to Genesis 43, because there's three ideas about the cosigner or the surety that I want us to consider. The first is his commitment, his commitment. There has to be a commitment to take on this responsibility. Someone asks you to co-sign on a loan. You're, you're taking on a commitment. You're saying, if they decide to stop paying, then that's going to come on me. 
If they won't pay what is obligated in this contract, then I'm going to have to pay. So it takes commitment. And you see this, this, this portion. Now let me just try to summarize where we've got to. There's a famine. The land of Canaan is suffering under that famine, just like Egypt and surrounding areas. The sons of Jacob have been sent because they've heard that there's corn in Egypt, so go there, get corn. It's not good for us just to survive on what we have here. We need corn. We need the basic sustenance of life. Go there and get corn if you can. He sends them all except for Benjamin. Benjamin was the brother of Joseph. Joseph, as far as Jacob was concerned, had come to a, a, a tragic end, and he is sorrowing about that to this day. Years have passed. He's still sorrowing. And he is reluctant then to let Benjamin, the one who still reminds him of his, of his beloved Leah, and he is reluctant to let him get in any place of danger. And perhaps is <laughs> a little bit uh, untrusting of his other sons. There may be an element of that in his mind too. Whatever the case, he sends the ten. And they go, they get corn, they stand before Joseph, they don't know anything about it. And in the interaction, if you're going to come back, he's told, if you want Simeon released and so on, you have to bring Benjamin. I want to see your brother. So they go back. Jacob is told of what happened. And Jacob will not, he will not let Benjamin go. But the famine progresses. It continues. The corn is used up. And he is put into this, this back is against the wall. We need more corn. And Jacob, who is so reluctant, he doesn't want to let his, his prized, the memory of the one that he loved, the last remaining memory of, of that relationship, he will not let go. It's too costly. And this is where Judah steps in. God has been dealing with Judah. We don't know all that's been going on, but we know that God has been dealing with them. And so I can't read it all. I encourage you to read chapter 43 and 44. But let's read verse 9 of chapter 43. We'll read from verse 8. Judah said unto Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. This is language of commitment, men and women. Here is a man who is assuming all responsibility insofar as he can. To the degree that he can be responsible for the life of Benjamin, he says, I will take it all. I am responsible for the safety of Benjamin. If there are consequences, I will pay for them. If there are debts, I will pay them. So you have this legal language that is used by Judah to alleviate the concern of his father. And he illustrates it so wonderfully. You can read through the entire exchange, not only what he says to his father, but then when, <laughs> when they leave Egypt and the cup, the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack and they're brought back to Egypt again and there's all of that interaction. Where is it? The end of chapter 44. What does he say? The very last verse. Listen to what Judah says to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph, of course. How shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father? Have you ever thought of those words? Have you ever thought upon what, what Judah is saying there? How he is he's expressing to Joseph how do you expect me to go to the Father and the lad be not with me? Have you ever considered him standing 
typifying the language of our Lord Jesus, who is committed to be surety of the sinner. How shall I go to the Father and the sinner whom I represent be not with me? Christ takes the role. He commits to a role where he is fully invested to bring those for whom he shed his blood into the presence of God. He can't go to the Father and not bring them with him. He must. He must. So when Jesus is the surety of a better covenant in his language of commitment, your confidence, child of God, your confidence that allows you to sit at this table, I hope it is a real confidence. I hope it's real because not that you see in yourself a perfect expression of obedience and perfect, steady faith, but that you see one who's committed. He is committed and he will not stand before the Father and not bring everyone who believes in him with him. So you sit at this table in confidence. It is as a little window into the very judgment day itself. Total confidence because of Christ. Do you feel a lack of assurance, do you? You struggle? Go to John 6. John 6. What does Jesus say in this familiar passage? John 6, 39. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Nothing. This is on him. Your standing before God is on him. Your confidence, the knowledge you have that it's well with your soul is on him. Now you may ask then, well, what separates us from everyone else? Maybe he represents the entire world and they're all going to be brought before him. But there's something that separates. Look at verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him. Underline it. What are you called to do? Believe. Believe on him. May have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. So, your assurance this morning, child of God, coming to this table, what's it based on? <laughs> Are you measuring your grief over sin? That's not, what it, that's not what's here. Are you measuring the, the extent of your faith? That's not what John 6 says. It's not the extent of faith. It's the existence of faith. Does it exist? Does it exist? Is it there in a flickering light? Is it there, just there, and only there? It's sufficient. Believe. Let your assurance be wrapped up in the surety who said, I can't go to the Father and not bring everyone for whom I have died with me. I am accomplishing it. I am committed to do the work. I will see it through. I couldn't help but consider also not only his commitment, but his courage. 
There's courage, isn't there? It's courage. The Bible warns us everywhere to, 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 not, to not strike hands, to not be co-signers financially. Don't do this. Don't, at least don't do it flippantly. If you're going to co-sign or underwrite someone else's loan or whatever, you better be prepared first to say, I can write that off. If it comes that I have to pay it, I can write that off. If you can do that, then go ahead. If you can't, don't ever. That's the wisdom of God's word. So Christ is not some kind of fool like us at times when we, we say, oh, sure, I'll co-sign that, and then we end up having to pay it, and we don't have the means to cover it. There is a courage in him that knows what is going to be required of him. Judah shows something of that. I'll just read the verse back in Genesis 44, verse 33, when he speaks to the governor of Egypt, Joseph. He says, Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord. and Let the lad go up with his brethren. There it is. There it is. There's Judah standing as it were, looking at the cross. I'll be the bondman. I'll pay the debt. I'll take the cross. I'll take the sufferings. I'll take the judgment. And let the lad go free. We come to this table. We take the bread. And we take the cup. It is in the knowledge that our courageous Redeemer looked, looked right into the face of the eternal wrath of God and said, I'll take it. I'll be the bondman. I'll bear the blame. Proverbs warns us in Proverbs eleven fifteen. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. And that's what I'm talking about. You know, you become a surety, you co-sign for for an alien, for a foreigner, for someone you don't know. You're going to smart for it. And yet, is there not a lovely thread of the gospel in that language? Were we not foreigners, aliens, strangers before God by nature? Were we not? Does Christ not, despite that, smart for it? We might go free. There is, of course, not only his commitment, his courage, there's also his charity. Again, if you go back to Genesis, you see Judah in chapter 44, again before the governor, before Joseph, unknowingly, he stands before him. Verse 18, then Judah came near unto him. Judah came near unto him and said, O oh my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears. There's just, he's coming near to this one who could take off his head in a moment, but he's doing it in love. In love for the Father and in love for Benjamin. Love. That's why we're here. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful it is to me. So this is your confidence. Go back to Hebrews as we tie this up. The famous historian Josephus estimated that there were 83 high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. 83. There were many priests. But you come today to look to one. One. 
You don't need any other. Your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You dare not trust the sweetest frame. You wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock you stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You come to the table today. Not because you have some elaborately dressed son of Aaron. Who portrays such a great image. And has an impressive presence. But you stand before one who was as a root out of a dry ground. Who had no form nor comeliness. When we should see him, there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. Despised, rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Come here today because you have a surety who has truly borne your griefs, carried your sorrows, made peace with God for you, and will not be in glory and leave you behind. May the Lord help us to rest in the sweetness of that truth today as we sit at the table. Let's pray. Gracious God, come by and strengthen our ability to see and behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. May we behold Him who has loved us with an everlasting love and with loving kindness has drawn us. <clears throat> Melt our hearts, dissolve the power of sin from us, make us more like Him. Spirit of God, come here. overshadow these moments around the table. Feed the sheep and the lambs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.